to do this morning. It's awesome seeing you. Grab your Bibles. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to start. And uh, today we are continuing our series uh, on the Ten Dur Commandments this morning. Um, I just want to let you know over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at, at chapters or at, at commands one, two, and three. And today, so uh, I'm going to start with, with uh, commandment number one this morning. Last week, Pastor Terry did an excellent job of, of explaining the context of the commandments in relationship to the law of God. Okay? Um, he encouraged us to be able to look at these commands, uh, the, these ten commandments. It's also known as the Decalogue, by the way. Um, and he talked about it being guardrails of grace. Opportunities for guidance and protection. A source of freedom for us and the people of Israel. It uh, gives them and us an identity that, that maybe that we've not had before and most definitely that the people of Israel has never had before. He also asked us, what is our understanding and relationship toward them? What is our heart towards those commands? What does it look like? Are we scared of them? Is it something that's imposing to us? How do we view them? Do we understand them and the relationship that they don't necessarily offer um, bad stuff? It, it offers us freedom and grace and understanding if we are able to obey them and live through them. So this morning, uh, I, I want us to, to really look at some, uh, the biblical contextual framework for the rest of this series. Uh, one of my seminary professors, um, I had a summer class, and he would, uh, it was a theology class on Tuesday mornings at 7.30. I have no idea why they put class that early in the morning. Um, but it was theology over a cup of coffee. So this morning I have my coffee. It's pretty good, by the way. And um, today I want to teach you a little bit of theology. Uh, I think it's important for us to, to understand the context and some of the theological language that we use and some of the things that are found within Scripture. So today's class is going to be a kind of a theology 101 a little bit. Um, it, it's not necessarily my typical, hey, yo, that was awesome, sermon, laughing kind of gig, you know. Uh, I'm definitely going to do that because we got to have some fun, but I want you to understand some things that maybe you've not understood before. Uh, typically, we, you know, we want you to grow this way and grow this way. This morning, I want us to, to grow a little deeper. Uh, I want us to, to understand some things that maybe we have not understood before, and, and hopefully you'll be able to pay attention to it and learn from it. So um, first thing I want to do, I want to start off with some theological words. And these are in your handout, so I just write these down. These are important, I think, for us to begin to understand, especially for the next couple of weeks, okay? So keep your finger in Exodus 20. We're going to hang out there, but then uh, grab your notes and, and jot these down. The first word I want you to understand, I've used it a few times already, it's theology. It literally means God speak. It's the study of the divine attributes and character of God, the language that we use about God. It, it really is the study of God. I spent four years in seminary, 97 hours of classes, have a master's degree in it, and I still have no idea who God is. Okay? So it's, it's all-encompassing. It's expansive. It's an amazing piece that, that you need to understand. Whenever you begin to study God, you are doing what? Theology. Okay, you with me? This side of the room is, this side is not. Awesome. Um, next, the next word I want you to know is called theophany. And I spelled them out for you. It's T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y. Theophany. Literally means God to appear. It is an appearance of God that is perceptible to human sight. Okay? A theophany. It's an appearance of God that is perceptible to human sight. We're going to look at that here in just a few minutes. You'll understand why these are important here in a little bit. Okay? The next word I think that's important for you to know is epiphany. Now, if you're liturgical, if you come from a, a, bath, uh, a Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopalian, those types of backgrounds, you understand that epiphany and, and some of those things in the context of the liturgical calendar, but it literally means the manifestation of the divine. Okay? Uh, throughout Scripture, any time 
uh, an angel, Michael, any of, the, any of those things appear. Uh, this, this angelic or divine manifestation of God in one way, shape, or form, that is called an epiphany. Okay? Whenever uh, the angel appears to Mary, hey, by the way, you're going to get pregnant and have a kid, that's an epiphany. Okay? Next. Are you bored yet? I hope so. All right. Uh, next is Christophany. What do you think that would mean? It's obviously written down. It's an appearance of Christ, okay? Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, a few days later, right, hangs out with the disciples, that's a Christophany. Whenever he's walking with the couple on the road to Emmaus, that's a Christophany. Anytime that there's a, an appearance of Christ, that is called a Christophany. Next, I love this word, henotheism. Henotheism. H-E-N-O-T-H-E-I-S-M. Henotheism is the view that there is one God who is supreme, but other deities may also exist. Most people see this as being a recognized view in relation to the commandment to Israel to have no other gods before me. This probably plays into our lives as well because in reality, we live in this concept of henotheism. We just don't know it. We understand that there is one God who is supreme. That is God, right? But there are also other gods, small g, that are in our lives, that mess with us, that impede us, that we have to work through and to move away from. And maybe some of those you'll see over here on my left, your right. We'll talk about that here in a little bit, but then also more next week. And then the final word, this is your nickel word for the day. Tetragrammaton. See, this proves I am smarter than I look. T-E-T-R-A-G-R-A-M-M-A-T-O-N. Tetragrammaton. This is, this literally means four letters. I don't know why they just don't call it four letters, but four letters. This is the designation for the four Hebrew consonants that refer to the God of Israel. It, it usually is, it's a Y-H-W-H, okay? Uh, whenever the, the authors were writing the book and writing things down, uh, they would write Y-H-W-H because that was, well, they wouldn't necessarily write it. I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, those four consonants were termed to mean God. And today we understand this, and I'll be using this word a lot. It's pronounced Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. See, as the scribes and transcribers began to, to translate and rewrite the, the scriptures, and uh, this word was considered to be so holy. This was the holiest name of God used. It was considered to be so holy that as they rewrote and wrote the scriptures, they would skip these four letters because they could not write it because it was so holy. At different times and places, they could not even speak it because it was such a holy name for God. So they would leave spaces in their parchment because it was they were unable to write the presence of God on paper. Today, you'll see this in your Bibles prolifically uh, throughout all the Scripture, uh, and it, it will look like this. It'll be translated capital L, then the small capital letters, O-R-D. Have you seen that? As you read your Old Testament? Have any of you ever wondered what that means? This is it. Capital L, small little O-R-D, is what Yahweh is. Whenever the Tetragrammaton was present, uh, as they translated it into our language and our understanding, this is what we have translated it into. Okay? Now you might be asking, you know, I, I don't really have any idea why these are important. I think they're important because evidences of these words and this understanding happen time and time again throughout Scripture. I also think it's important for us to learn a little bit of theological jargon, a little bit of that language that, that helps us maybe to understand something a little bit deeper. Now, you don't hear us talking about these kinds of words and uh, stuff like that typically from the platform because we want to make uh, our messages approachable for everybody. And that's why I wanted to take just a little bit of time and help you understand what these words mean. So I also want you to understand this, that you simply cannot understand the Ten Commandments 
without reading several chapters before and after this chapter 20. You have to begin in chapter 19. It's an easy read, by the way. It's a lot of fun. Begin in chapter 19 and go through 24, and then in chapter 31 through the first part of 35. So you have to understand, these chapters that I just mentioned are what is considered the terms of the covenant that God is going to prepare to make that we're going to read about in just a second with Israel. Chapter 31, if you have your finger in uh, chapter 20, kick over a few pages to chapter 31 and verse 18 says this. When the Lord finished speaking with Moses on, on Mount Sinai, he gave to him the two t- stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant written by the finger of God. A couple chapters later in thirty-four twenty-seven, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down all these instructions, for they represent the terms of the covenant I am making with you and with Israel. Now, at the bottom of your handouts, right below those definitions, I've included the important scriptures because I, I didn't want to make a whole booklet for you. So I referenced them there for you so you can look at those uh, later this week. Because I know what you do is you take this home and you really study the message every week. No, you don't. Um, some do. I'm just kidding. Okay, you with me so far? Awesome. Um, Now, I want you to also understand in totality, the terms of the covenant is everything that Moses is writing from chapters 19 all the way to the end, chapter 40. All of those are the terms within the covenant that God is making. But the only thing that was written down in stone for all time for us to fully understand were what were called the ten words, okay? The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The rest of the material in these chapters is the figurative and literal understanding and living out of chapter chapter 20, verses 1 and following. Okay? All of the Ten Commandments, they're listed here. Chapter 1, or chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. They're all listed there. And then the next several chapters flesh those out even more. Every single one of them are mentioned... Um, beyond just this little piece. That's how important they are. God talks about them through Moses and helps Moses and the people understand how to live these out. So also in your program on the backside, if you flip it over, uh, I've included several other places within the context, the biblical understanding, where these, the living out of the Ten Commandments comes in. Commands 1 and 2, that's the images or other gods. You'll see a list there. Notice in chapter 34, verse 17, I put it in parentheses right here. Verse 17 is specific about the golden calf, and we'll talk more about him next week. But that verse specifically says, don't make any molten images out of metal. Okay? Refers to the calf. Command number three, misuse of God's name. Command number four, uh, the Sabbath, honoring your father and mother, murder, adultery, stealing, false witness, and coveting. All of them are mentioned throughout those several chapters. Okay? So let's set the stage of what is about to happen. Flip back just a little bit, Exodus 19, verse 1. We heard a little bit about this last week uh, from Pastor, and I wanted to, to revisit it because it's extremely important for you to understand. Okay, it's up on our screen if you don't have your Bibles with you, but if you do, 19, verse 1. It says, exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. Breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. See, the people of God have been walking through the desert for 60 days exactly two months later until they arrived at this place. You have to understand there's between two and three million people in this exodus. Uh, And they moved 130 to 150 kind of miles, somewhere in that space from Egypt, from Rephidim to where Mount Sinai is. It took a long time. Can you imagine walking three or four or five miles a day with your family and all your belongings and everything on your back and maybe on some carts and maybe some animals pulling stuff. So once they get there, they settle in, and, and this is what happens, verse 5. God then reminds Moses that he is the one who brought them out of Egypt. 
says this. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among the peoples of the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, that seems pretty easy, right? I mean, if we really look at it, if you'll obey me and keep my covenant, how difficult is that? Very. Verse 5, God says, if you obey me and keep my covenant, I'm going to do these things for you. I'm going to make you a special people. I'm going to set you apart. So what happens next? Moses comes back down the mountain, tells the people of Israel all that God has told him in this little section. And verse 8, they say this, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. By the way, that's your memory verse for today if you check that out. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. They just didn't say it. They shouted it in unison. As a people of God, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. What would it have... See, we know, we know the story. Did they do that? Not so much. What would it have looked like if they had? I wonder what it would have looked like if they would have stuck to their word and obeyed everything God commanded. I wonder what your life would look like. I wonder what my life would look like. If I had said, Exodus 19.8, we will do everything the Lord has commanded, and then I actually lived that out. People of Israel say this at least once, maybe two more times in this section as well. We, we're going to do it. We're going to do everything God has commanded. So what Moses does is he hears the people, takes them at face value, walks back up the mountain and talks to God and says, listen, this is what the people have said. They will do everything you command. So God says, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to come to you, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak to you. Then they will always trust you. Go back down the mountain and prepare the people for my arrival. You see, I, I think that this is an extremely important sequence of events. That, that, that God begins to speak because this is going to be, and here's your, one of the words I uh, outlined for you earlier, this is the first theophany that the people of Israel are going to have. Moses has had what before? He's had, he's had theophanies before. He has seen the appearance of God, the whole burning bush thing, right? God has appeared to him. God has spoken through him. God has used Moses. But this time it's different. This time God says, I'm going to appear to the people of Israel just as I appeared to you, Moses. See, the, the, the people of Israel have never experienced this from Yahweh before. They've never experienced this from any other God, small g, before. This is something that, that they, have, they can't even begin to wrap their minds around as Moses comes back down and says, listen, y'all need to prepare. He didn't say y'all, but I do. Y'all need to prepare yourselves because God's coming. And you have three days because you, they, they had the whole purification ritual that they had to do. They had to wash and present themselves and do various things in order to go to worship, to go to church. Most of you get up, take a shower, put on some clothes, Right? Some of you get up, put on some clothes. Don't shut. Whatever it takes. Thank God you wear clothes. That's the biggest thing, right? They had to do a certain set of things. So, so it takes them three days. See, Yahweh is setting the stage for them to be revealed. The title of today's message is the self-disclosure of God. Part one. <laughs> this is the first time God is going to disclose himself to the people See, this is the same God that was completely unapproachable without a priest. It's the same God who told Moses in chapter 3, you better not come any closer. You, you can't even look upon my presence. It's the same God Moses was scared to death of and argued with that he was not the right guy to take this message to the people. So the people purify themselves. And this next phrase I think is really important as well. Now on the third day, that sound familiar? New Testament? 
Three days later, it's, it's significant. Three days later, after the people had purified themselves according to the laws of God, Yahweh arrives. You see, he doesn't, uh, uh, you know, not all nice and sweet and quiet that we might understand God. You know, he, he comes in that still small voice and a whisper and those kinds of things. Look at the text. He comes in thunder and lightning and fire and smoke as if it were coming out of a brick kiln. There's a dense cloud. There's a violent shaking of the mountain with an increasing loudness of the blast of a ram's horn. See, God descended upon Mount Sinai and appeared to his people. He was clearly present with the people at that very moment. He even instructed, if you'll look in verse 24, he even instructed Moses to tell the people, he said, listen, I'm coming down. They're going to want to see me. We're going to set up some barriers because this is a heck of a rock concert I'm about to put on, right? We're going to set up some barriers. Don't let them break through the barriers to see me because he says in verse 24b, I may break out and destroy them. How terrifying do you think this could be? Oh, by the way, guys, I'm coming down to hang out with you. But don't cross the borders because I'll kill you. It's kind of awkward, right? So Moses went back down. He told all the people. And then we hear these words in chapter 20, verse 1. Then God gave whom? The people. All the instructions. See, most of the time, in, in our readings, and sometimes we don't understand the whole story, most of the time we only think that God gave the instructions to Moses on Mount Sinai, don't we? I've got, we've got a, a poster up here, The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille. See, it's, the depiction is Moses goes up, God speaks, writes it down, Moses comes down, right? That's not until chapter 32. We've got a long way to go, baby. Chapter 20 God gives the instructions to all the people. All the people are going to hear the voice of God. God is speaking to the people so that they'll know. I read it a minute ago. So that they'll know and trust Moses and understand that he ain't just making this stuff up. Think about it. This guy comes to you, says, God has spoken to me and told me all this crazy stuff and you got to do everything he says. You'll look at him and go, I don't think so. So God has decided, I'm going to speak. So suddenly this, this God who is unapproachable, this Yahweh, you can't even speak his name. The, the God who's too dangerous to look at because you might die, this uncontainable Yahweh begins to speak to the people of Israel. The entrance of God was more than the people could have ever imagined. Uh, you know, I'm sure that the author did the best he could to try to describe it. See, there's thunder. See, the, the difference between living here and the rest of the United States, specifically in the Midwest, whenever there's a storm worn 30 here, that means you might get a half an inch of rain and the wind might be over 25 miles an hour, right? Storm worn 30 in the Midwest means you better get in the basement because you could die. Because there is thunder, there is lightning, there's tornadoes, there's heavy winds, there's hail, there's flash flooding. Out here it's like, oh, I just washed my car. <laughs> there's a storm. You know, if, it, if it's under 65 degrees, you all dress like you're in parkas, right? Because, oh my God, it's so cold. If you've ever shoveled a foot and a half of snow off the top of your car, you get what I'm saying, but most of you haven't. So the author is trying to help us understand that there's thunder, lightning, a storm, a trumpet blast. If you've, uh, and you, probably, you may or may not have, if you've ever heard the blast of the ram's horn, it is ominous and amazing. And it can deafen you. It can be so loud. See, this made the entire camp tremble. Can you imagine? It made the mountain that they were standing around literally shake because this amazing amount of, of energy and power and authority so enormous that the intended, intended vessels to be able to carry it, creation and the people of God, they, can, they can't even wrap their minds around it. 
See, the, the coming of the Holy One is unspeakable. There are no adequate words, yet all we're left with is this text. See, the narrator wants you to see so much in all of this. See, in the hidden holiness of God, as words fail to describe the experience adequately, all we're given is fire and smoke and violent movement and trumpet blasts. Anytime we have an experience of God like that, the words that we speak can't necessarily describe it all that it means. Whenever I try to describe the love I have for my children, you can't really articulate that. Because, oh, I love you, it doesn't mean, see what I'm saying? Words can't necessarily describe whenever the presence of God, Yahweh, has descended upon these people. I mean, he is like this alien presence. You know, he's this foreboding, threatening, destabilizing otherness that they can't get their minds around. See, the the narrator wants us to, to, to take up in awe and terror because this Holy One of God, this Yahweh, is beyond all portrayal. They can't wrap their minds around it. You see, uh, you hear us talk about the holiness of God, that this holiness of God is all around and ever-present with the people. Earlier, God says, listen, this mountain is going to be holy. You cannot look upon me. The priests who confidently operate in there, they go into the Holy of Holies and they communicate with God. Even they are warned to be careful because you cannot be complacent or comfortable in the presence of God. Most of the time we are. We get very complacent and comfortable whenever we're in the presence of God. And if we believe to be that we are in the presence of God daily, our lives should be not comfortable, but awe-inspiring. See, this meeting between God and his people is a theophany. A theophany, by definition, is disruptive. It's this mode of communication that can change our lives and completely changes the lives of the people. This self-disclosure of God is the only way that the people could have begun to understand Him. See, they've heard about God. They've seen God deliver them from Egypt. But they haven't really understood all that God is. In this very moment... Yahweh seizes the initiative to establish the relationship with the Israelite people and with us. See, this text shows the freedom of God. He can come and do whatever he wants. He's untamed. He's undomesticated. See, and the fact is that, that remember, they went and prepared themselves for how many days? Three days. No matter how much they prepared themselves and how much they did, they are not ready for this. No matter how many times we prepare ourselves, and we don't always know when we're going to experience God. But no matter how hard we try to prepare ourselves, when God appears in our lives in various ways, we are very seldom ready for it. When God speaks, we typically are like, well, what was that? I wasn't ready for him to say this, or I wasn't ready to be called to do this, or I wasn't anticipating this answer. See, these Ten Commandments, and and I hope you understand this, they are the decisive way that God establishes this relationship with himself and the people of Israel because it's intended to solidify and unify this relationship with the creator of all things. He is the one that has delivered them. He liberated them from slavery And now he is the one who is speaking directly to his people. So to put these in a little bit even broader context, there's a bigger vision here of these Ten Commandments because it is establishment of the relationship between Yahweh and us, the people of God then as well. And if you understand these Ten Commandments, it creates a new accountability a new level of desired obedience. The people said, we will do everything that God commands. Won't we? No. See, secondly, the, uh, this context is given in this mosaic faith piece. 
See, Moses has been speaking the truths about God over and over on behalf of God to the people. And now they are hearing it from God's mouth themselves. See, this explains the reason why God says in 19.9 that that as a result of this interaction, Moses, they are going to hear my voice and they will trust you because they're going to hear from me directly. They also sustain this relationship that's been developing over the first 19 chapters of this exodus. This new God relationship stands in complete 180 degree, complete opposite context of the situation they left. 430 years, according to Exodus 12, verse 40, they have hung out in Egypt. And if you know anything about Egypt, they had a bunch of what? A bunch of gods. A god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the stars, a god of fertility, a god of grain, a god of cow. All these different gods. And now God is saying, by the way, I'm delivering you from that. Then in chapter 20, verse 2, let's look together. He reminds them of who he is. All this has happened, this thunder and lightning and cloud and smoke and shaking. If that's not enough, he says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. See, the first part of this is all the people really needed to know. See, Moses had been telling them, listen, Yahweh delivered you. Yahweh has delivered you. Yahweh's the guy who did this, and Yahweh this, and Yahweh that, and now Yahweh says, I am. That's how Yahweh revealed himself to Moses, wasn't it? God, tell me, what's your name? I am that I am. Well, that doesn't help us at all, does it? So God says, guess what? I am Yahweh. Throughout that whole narrative, that's how God has used his name. God uses this phrasing so that the people know who they are truly dealing with. Uh, I, I, I could just imagine one of them going, oh, this is the I am guy. This is the one that Moses has been talking about. The one who challenged Pharaoh. I get it now. And now God is using the same understanding to stake a claim. He is, he is he's nailing a flag in the people of Israel at this point. See, he's already done so much for them. He's already delivered them. He's, he's done so many things. He basically is saying, remember me? This is what I've done. Have you ever had God speak to you maybe in that way? Remember me? This is what I've done for you. Don't forget about me because this is me. The last half of this phrasing, the last half of this verse, should and could completely revolutionize the way that we look at God. He gives this first command, you must not have any other God but me. You see, this first command sets a whole new tone for Israel. It completely changes everything. It completely has the power to change their obedience. This is the essential command, along with the second one. We'll talk about that next week, but these two, especially this one, is foundational for the rest of the Ten Commandments. The other nine, the rest of the, the laws, the rest of the Bible is not going to matter as much if these people and you don't obey command number one. See, if we don't get these two first commands right, then everything else in our lives is out of whack. If we cannot get our minds wrapped around these two pieces, you're not going to have any other God but me. Don't make any idols. We'll talk about that next week because that's a kicker. If we don't get those right, our understanding of all of this right here, none of this matters. None of this matters if you don't get this. And once you begin to get this, your life will change. So there are four themes at the bottom of the second page. There are four themes that I really think are important to understanding this one single verse. And this comes from Walter Brueggemann, who's a 
the world-renowned Old Testament scholar. Uh, him and a couple other guys have collaborated on, on several books and various things. So these four themes are important to the understanding of, of Israel and to us. So the first theme that God is invoking with his people, he says, you must not have any other God but me. The first thing that he wants them to hear is singular loyalty. You cannot be loyal to anybody else. See, this command requires Israel to mobilize all of its life. Everything that it does, every sphere in in all of it around one single thing. And that single thing is Yahweh alone. So, the people then and, and you today, us today... We practice, remember that word I said earlier, henotheism? Uh, we, we have all this stuff kind of going on. It, it lets different gods have, have play in our lives and, and various spheres. You know, in Israel, they prayed to 40,000 gods over various things. And today we, we hold money and people and the Twilight Saga, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. See, uh, uh, you know. All of these various things, stars, athletes, we worship them as gods. See, this command insists on the integration and coherence and unity of all of life. Israel is a community destined to will one thing, just follow one thing, and that one thing is Yahweh. See, it not only translates for them, but also for us. Secondly, he wants them to understand there should be no other airtime. Okay? Now, I'm not talking Michael Jordan airtime. There's no other airtime. See, this, this command, number one, does not say that there is only one God, does it? Does it? No. It does not say there is only one God. It does not make a claim that... that Monotheism is the only thing. There's not only one. It does not insist there are not other gods, but it does insist that no other gods should be receiving any of Israel's loyalty or allegiance. None. See, this command is, is keeping with the understanding of the Shema. And the Shema is found in um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it says this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you go to bed, and when you get up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on the foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It doesn't say there, there aren't any other gods out there. I am the only one. You should not give any of your allegiance, no airtime. Nobody gets your attention but me. That's it. We'll look more at this. And I keep baiting you for next week, right? Next week we're going to look more at this as well. Third. God wants them to understand that they should not compromise their worship. See, the the, the phrase before me, that God says you should have no other gods before me or but me, it may also read before my face. uh, Because the understanding and the reference of God, that often means in my sanctuary or in my altar, anytime the priest would would go into the altar of God. It was, it was talking about the face of God and, and meeting God face to face and in his sanctuary. So, so this, this, trans, this can be translated very easily as in my presence. You should have no other gods in my presence. You should have no other gods in my shrine. See, and if we read it that way, then it pertains precisely to worship. See, the, the worship life of Israel, the worship life of us, must be under this, this stringent discipline, this understanding that the only thing we worship is whom? Yahweh. There's no other thing that we should 
worship. Oftentimes we worship other things. We come in here and we worship the band. We worship the amazing speaking. We worship the, at least some of you are paying attention, right? You were slower. That was funny from here. Um, You know, we worship these things. We worship the color of the chairs. We worship the carpet. Maybe not here, but I can guarantee I've served in other places. I'm not even going to go there. That's a whole other sermon. We are to not worship anything. Don't compromise your worship. My belief of worship is not what we do here. This is not worship. This is me trying to teach you and help you understand and us offering praise to God. Worship is the way we live our lives. Our life is a worship-filled testimony to who God is in us. So think about that for a second. That'll mess you up. Okay? Don't compromise your worship, God says. And, and this, the next one, I think, it, for me, it's, it's absolutely amazing. If we, if we read it this way and think about it this way, this comes from a, a guy named, by the name of H. Graf Reventflow, who's a, a highly esteemed German theologian. And, and Walter Brueggemann and some other people that you don't really care about, but I'm letting you know I'm not making this up, Okay? The fourth idea is this, banishment for the rest. Banishment. See, this, this understanding has an amazing amount of merit if we go back and look at the Hebrew and, and understand it. See, the formulation in the Hebrew is not necessarily, thou shalt not Right? That's, that's what we hear, all ten of them. Thou shalt not, blah, 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 whatever. But rather, it can be read and translated, there will not be to you. Does that make sense? Not necessarily thou shalt not, but there shall not be to you. There will, be, there will not be to you any other gods. See, his understanding, and among others, that this statement is not an imperative command but an indicative whereby Yahweh, in light of the Exodus, remember, all this has happened. All this stuff's been going on. He delivers them. He says, by the way, I'm the guy who delivered you and set you free. Now this is the deal. I am banishing all other gods from your presence. 430 years of being under Egyptian rule, all of those gods, I'm banishing them from your vocabulary. What that does is that gives the people of Israel freedom to worship, freedom to obey without any distracting compromise because they had to worry how they were going to be treated or punished under Egyptian rule and what happened, blah, blah, blah. And they, all this stuff was going on in their heads. And whenever God says, guess what? I am banishing all those other gods from your vocabulary. You don't even have to worry about them. In this one phrase, it becomes like this, this theological emancipation Theologically, remember study God, all that stuff? They don't have to think about all these other gods. They get to focus on one dude, one being, one entity. That's it. In this one phrase, he says, I'm not only delivering you from Egypt, but I have released you to worship me alone and worship me freely. I think this last piece can can be the most profound. I, I mean, think about it. If Yahweh speaks these words and banishes all other gods from their life, if God speaks these words and banishes all other gods from your life, what does that look like for us? What kind of freedom do we have? How liberating could that be? If we don't have to think about all these other gods and all this other stuff and this henotheistic view of all these various gods and all this mess, if we believe that God speaks and banishes the rest of them, they should not even be part of our vocabulary. There's a guy named Jesus that says something similar. John chapter 14, verse 6, six he says this. What? I am the way, the truth, and the life and there is no other way to the Father except through 
me. This isn't a, a command that we necessarily have to obey, quote unquote. We need to obey it. But we must hear it and accept it as truth and reality. See, if you can do that, it changes our perception and understanding of these Ten Commandments. If God has banished all of the gods from our lives, from the life of Israel, then no God, small g, has power over you, control over you, authority over you. What if we lived our lives that way? If we lived our lives in complete, oh, here's the T word, complete trust in Yahweh. Not trust in this. Try passing this off at 7-Eleven, I dare you, right? Not trust in this. Not trust in this. Not trust in this. Not trust in anything else except Yahweh. If we can do that, then, then we don't have to worry about all this mess taking up the rest of our time. We are free to worship Yahweh alone. See, I don't know about you, but that sounds like good news to me. And if you know the New Testament, Jesus basically, like I said in John 14, 6, says the same thing. Jesus came to set the captives free, right? He came to release us from our sin and forgive us. He made a way to the Father. The only way to get to God, Yahweh, is through whom? Come on. Jesus. In the Hebrew, it's Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah. He's all we need. He's the only way to get there. Do our lives reflect that? Sadly, no. I mean, I'm, mine doesn't always. But every third Thursday it might. Right? What if we begin to transition our minds and change the way we live? See, if we follow God through this whole narrative of the Exodus and through this understanding, an Israelite, and this comes from a guy named by the name of George Pixley, he says, if we, if we read all this and understand this, an Israelite had no choice. A Martinez resident, a Concord resident, a Pleasant Hill resident, a wherever you live resident, had no choice but to reject any form of loyalty to any God who had not saved the slaves of Egypt. I am banishing them from you. It's like God was saying this. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt and delivered you from slavery. I am the one who's liberated you and set you free. I am the one who brought plagues and even killed people to make sure your deliverance was successful. Show me another God who can do such a thing. There are none. Therefore, I'm the only God you need. There's no need to seek after any other gods because they cannot do what I can do. They cannot provide the way I provide. They cannot deliver the way I deliver. Therefore, I banish any and all other gods from your vocabulary. Chapter 34, flip over. It's in here. 34.10. Yahweh says this. I think it's up here. Listen, he says, I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that they have never seen performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. There are no other gods who can do what I can do. Let me show you. Hosea, chapter 13, verse 4, God declares through his prophet this. He says, and it's up on our screens. He said, I have been the Lord your God ever since when? Hosea saying, hey, by the way, guys, this is a long time after this. Remember, the, remember Yahweh? He delivered y'all from Egypt. I have been the Lord your God ever since I brought you out of Egypt. You must acknowledge 
no God but me. For there is what? No other Savior. I'm banishing them from your presence. Don't acknowledge them. Don't give them any airtime. I declare your single loyalty. Don't worship them. I am all you need. Again, I wonder if we're able to live this out and really understand it. See, all these other gods are at play in our lives. See, it's not a matter of there being no other gods at work or desire who desire our time. It's a matter of who are you going to put your faith and trust in. If you believe, if you believe that Yahweh is the one who has delivered you from your own Exodus-like experience, who has maybe healed you from your disease, who has used somebody else to speak life and truth and wisdom into your soul, this same Yahweh has offered us salvation through his son Jesus, who's the only way we can connect to this unspeakable and incomprehensible God of the Exodus. The God who created all that we see and all that we are. The God who shook the mountain and descended to this earth in a cloud and in fire and in his son. If we believe in that God, Yahweh, then why do we need anything else? Today, you're going to need to decide whether or not you're ready to believe and submit to this first of the Ten Commandments. If not, the rest are not going to have very much meaning. I mean, they're going to be good talks, right? They're good to read. They're good guidelines. But there's not going to be a lot of growth and transformation inside here. So I'm going to ask you just to take a moment. Listen to the voice of God. Except that he's banished all other gods from your life. You don't have to worry about anything else. You don't have to, to worship money. You don't have to worship these other things. You don't have to put any loyalty in anything else except one Yahweh. It's up to you.